This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Asia Torah in the old city of Jerusalem overlooking the Temple Mount. There's something in my ears. I've got to deal with it right away. Um, yesterday, what we spoke about was, uh, was how we, cre- we live in a bluff we, in that we create, we create reasons why, we're, why things aren't working. Meaning if something's not working in your life, you'll create a reason why it's that way, and then you'll just live in that, that reasoning all your life. So um, is there any water here by any chance? You've been lipping that stuff? Personal bottle, yeah. That's how you lip in your own bottle is always permissible. Um, yeah, sure. I, I think she may know where she is a little better as far as finding water. Just in the way she asked if I wanted water, it seemed like she knew what she was doing. Um, thank you so much. Uh, I'll give you a couple of hints uh, behind the desk over there. Okay, maybe the faucet if I need it, if we're stuck. Okay, so we spoke about how we create philosophies around issues, meaning wherever there's dysfunction, we will create a worldview that somehow supports the dysfunction or keeps it there. And so, um, to, but what we also spoke about is why is there dysfunction to begin with? Like, why would we maintain dysfunction? And the answer is, is because every person has what's called a misery comfort zone, or we call it the MCZ. Everyone say MCZ. Thank you so much. Can you pour me two of those? MCZ stands for the misery comfort zone. Misery comfort zone. Now, in the misery comfort zone, there are... Uh, let me give you the definition. The definition is that, that it's the amount of misery that you're comfortable with, and anything that threatens to make you happier, you will sabotage. Okay, I'll say it again. It's the amount of misery you're comfortable with, and anything that threatens to make you happier, you will sabotage. Now, you're probably thinking, well, wait a second, if it's miserable, it's not comfortable. Like, what is even the term misery comfort zone? Because if I'm miserable, I'm certainly not comfortable. But if you think about yourself, you'll realize that, that you are comfortable with a certain amount of misery. And wherever, whenever you get in a situation that's so good that you don't even recognize yourself, you will mess it up. You got that? When you get in a situation, whether it's a relationship, whether it's your health, whether it's your, your money, whether it's your, um, your stuff, you know, or, or, uh, or it could be your lifestyle or whatever. Whenever it's getting too good, you'll mess it up somehow. And, and that's just the nature of people. That's what people do. They mess up their, their, when it gets too good because we don't know how to deal with it and we don't recognize ourselves. And, and <laughs> maybe we could do this tomorrow since you asked for yesterday's preview. I mean, I mentioned the misery comfort from yesterday and you asked me to do it today, but, but there's a whole other reason. What are we doing with such a thing? And the answer is, that, that human beings, when it comes to identity anyway, are lacking. I mean, I don't think anyone in this room would come stand up here and, and tell us who you are. I mean, you want to get up here and, t- like, like, who you really are. Like, someone want to get up here? You want to get up here and tell us who you really, really deep down are. So the, what you'll realize is nobody knows who they are. None of us know who we are at all. And you want to know who the happiest people are? in the world? You want to know who the happiest people are? You want to know the people who are the, the, the greatest people, your favorite people? The, meaning there, there are only a few in the world like this, you know, meaning one in the hundreds, is the people who are actually fine with not knowing who they are. See, you think not knowing who you are is a crisis. You think a lack of identity is a crisis, like, oh my gosh, what if people found out I have no idea who I am? That'd be terrible. 
And meanwhile, the happiest people you meet are the ones who are fine with it. For example, me. I'm a pretty happy person. And I have no idea who I am. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I literally have no idea who I am at all. You know, they, there's... Uh, and they, but what's beautiful about having no idea who I am is it gives me now a tremendous capacity to be anyone. And I often have to be anyone. You know, I'm, I'm being asked to be someone all the time. Yeah, I got all, I got Blia and Hara. Thank God I have a, a whole slew of kids. You know, they seem to come every two years for quite some period of time there. And I, I guess the only family planning we did was planning to have a big family because they, they just kept coming, thank God. And, uh, and so I'm really, got, I'm really a father in a big way over there. And, and then there's being a husband. That's pretty intense. And then there's being, a, I, I lead seminars, which means I have to be really firm, and really strict, and I've got to take all the people who have a fear of being out of control, which is a good, let's say, at least a third of humanity has a fear of being out of control, and I have to, I have to break them in the seminar to shake them up, and that, that's so not me, but I, I mean, I've got the capacity for that because I have no idea who I am anyway, so why not be... Darth Vader for a few hours a night when I'm running a seminar. You know, and be that, be that sergeant. So your issues with not knowing who you are, with your lack of identity, is not an issue if you just embrace it. And if you look at Judaism, by the way, it, it's, it's trying to get rid of your identity. I mean, that's the whole thing. Who's, our, who's the biggest hero in the entire Torah? Moses. And Moses is the only person in the entire Torah that's like, the one thing we know about him is he had no idea who he was. He was just like, I mean, you could, you could disgrace him and he just wouldn't even get it. He wouldn't even realize that it was about him that you were disgracing. He didn't care if he was shepherding sheep or a nation of three million people. Like, it was like, oh, oh well, I know how to shepherd, so I guess, yeah, okay, I'll do it. You know, and he goes down and he like shepherds the Jewish people for 40 years through the desert. Becomes the greatest leader ever just because he could shepherd sheep. You know, he was good. He was a good shepherd. So he, so he, okay, I could take those skills somewhere. You know, I could do, I could do that. And you can do anything when you're, when you're no one. But when you're someone, whoa, watch out. I mean, how many people do I meet all the time who are just like, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. And I can't do that. You know, like, it's like I tell this guy, uh, uh, what's your name back there in the white shirt? Shimon. Shimon, please sing us a solo. <laughs> uh, no thanks. You know, I'm not doing that, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and if you don't mind, I would like you, I'm going to set you up with a very, very wealthy guy here in Jerusalem. I would like you to take over one of his buildings. It has 100 units in it. Okay, so I'll get you the appointment. And your job is just to go in there and convince him why you, he should hand you these hundred units to manage. Let's do it. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> you do it? You just go in there? Yeah, let's go. I like this guy. He's a bit of a no one as well. So, so when you're no one, whoa, it all opens up. Now, so the question was, why would we, why would we sabotage for our misery comfort zone? Is it's because it's all we know. Reminds me of an image I saw once, a clip, I mean, it's a pretty horrible clip, but they, they were kids who were badly, their skin was visually, you know, singed and they had been badly abused. 
and they're, um, you can see like the child services people are holding the kids, taking them to you know a car, and the mother is in cuffs and she's being put in a police car, and the kids are screaming "Mama" over the so- shoulders of the people's services people. You understand? They're screaming "Mama," and and so they're. I mean, that's just an extreme visual for you all of uh, of what we're like. Because we're all we're all screaming, "Mama!" For "Mama" is your identity, and your original identity is, comes from "Mama," and and we're but we're all screaming, "Mama!" for things that just don't work for us. They don't work at all, but yet we'll keep it because it's all we know of ourselves. That's how we know ourselves, and so we want to be really careful of that and embrace the no one inside of you. Embrace your no one. <laughs> embrace the no one because that no one is your greatness. That's your greatness, and that's where you you that's where you, you you stop limiting yourself in what's possible for you because I'm no one anyway, so let's go, you know whatever it is. But we are all locked on to various identities, many of which we should have discarded a long time ago, but we still hold on. And so I want everyone to take a moment right now and just think a little bit about what kind of identities are you holding on to, and where do they have you stopped? Just take a moment on that. Let's look inside. Where are you stopped? Whether it's socially, professionally, dealing with authority, dealing with choices and decision-making, future, dealing with your future, Where are you stopped? And you'll notice that, that it's because there's some kind of identity that's being threatened, and therefore you have to keep yourself held back there. There's an identity that's it's at risk. Some identity you're squeezing onto. And you may not even like that identity very much, but you know, at least, at least you know it. It's so much more stable than the unknowns. And this is why, for example, diets don't work very well for people. Um, diets don't work that well for people because they just don't recognize themselves in top shape. You know, they, they just can't, they don't know who that is to be in top shape. And so, and so it's like, it's really hard. For, and once in a while you'll meet someone who, uh, some people will have a surgery or some other people will get themselves you know, in some extreme regiment to get in great shape. And, and uh, But you'll find them later back in the, you know, like kind of recreating themselves back into the shape that they've, that their misery comfort zone would want to maintain for them. And obviously, um, when you're through with this, when you're done with your misery comfort zone and you're happy to be no one, the, uh, it's incredible how easy it is to maintain your... Um, physical body and, and your, your food intake and your exercise regimen and it all just kind of flows quite naturally to someone who's no one and, they, and it's just kind of you become kind of like kind of become cat-like you know like, a, like you're almost like a, a deer in the mountains because they're exercising all the time but they never even think of it as exercise and they always eat the diet that's built for them from God 
you know, they're eating their food as close to the way God made it as possible. And when you're no one, you also tend to, you're not really touching packaged food much, you know, not so many products, you know, your drink is water and your, your food is as close to the source as possible, you know, highly recognizable from when it was in the ground. You want it nice and fresh. And, uh, or in the water or running around the ground or whatever, but fresh, fresh and, and, and the least doctored up in frying pans and stuff like that. Cause heat, when you heat up oils, they get toxic and they, I'm sorry, they get acidic and, and, um, yeah, it makes everything taste good, but it, but it's, uh, you, you start to see your mouth no longer as a place to live. Cause think, how long does food live in your mouth? How long does food live in your mouth? Food lives in your mouth like, I don't know, it depends how long you chew. I mean, some people chew longer than others, but I would imagine that the, that, I imagine that uh, 1.0001% of the time food spends in your mouth compared to the time it spends in your body dealing with it. You know what I mean? You're, the food in your mouth is like a tiny, tiny decimal point fraction of the time that food will spend in your body. But how many of us have been living in our mouths? We're literally living in our mouths as if that food's hanging out there the whole time. But it just isn't hanging out there the whole time. It's barely there. And the food's spending all this time in our body and our body's just going like, what the hell happened? You know, like, what is that? What's going on there? And uh, both the amounts and the intake and all the, all this stuff. But the, so, so if you want to do this just for fun, when you go wherever you live, uh, wherever you're staying in Jerusalem tonight, just for fun, uh, go into the doorway and just stay in the doorway for a while till like your roommates are like, what are you doing? And like, well, I'm just hanging around the doorway, you know, cause I see, I see, I'm like, I'm way overly involved in the doorway to my body, which is my mouth. And, and I'm just hanging out way too much in the doorway. And so I'm, I'm just going to stay in the doorway just to embellish this, uh, this, uh, way I've been dealing with food, hanging around the doorway. Uh, you had a question? Um, yeah, okay, so you, like, yeah, there's two definitions of no one. I think you chose the one I wasn't discussing. I was saying, I, know, I get what you're saying, but I feel like there's also a different way. Like, there's, like, a thing of, like, you don't fall into any category. You can be whoever you want. But that's the part of yourself that you're no one, then, like, you don't have an house. Like, you don't have the what? You don't like, you like don't have it. Like, if you're telling yourself, like, oh, I'm a no one, so I can be whoever I want, yeah, it's kind of like a bit of a contradiction because then you're like, well, if you're no one and you don't have any skills, and then like, oh, why'd you get rid of the skills? <laughs> where'd, the, where'd the skills disappear to? I'm just waiting for the question. You, can you formulate the question? I'm happy to take this question. Like, I want the question. Well, a, a couple things, a couple things happen when you get known. I, I think you're misunderstanding this known business. Okay, a couple things happen when you get known, and I was going to do this tomorrow if you wanted, but I'll just give you a little of known. So once you have known, so you got a couple good things going on. Number one is your personality, because every person has a natural personality. If you take thirty three-year-olds in a kindergarten, are any two of them alike? Are any of them two remotely alike? No. 
they're not even remotely alike. It's shocking how every single kid comes with a totally different personality than the one next to them. This is before they've been highly socialized. They're three, you know, and they're, they're just not, there's no two alike. So all of us have a natural personality. Now that natural personality gets like heavily trimmed until we're someone else, you know, because we basically cut and paste after that. Um, the, our natural personality is really quite dangerous for us once we turn three or four or five years old because your natural personality has a lot of things going on. Like, number one is self-expression. It's fully self-expressed. It's also extremely loving. Like, who's anyone know of a toddler right now? Anyone have a toddler, a niece, a nephew, a child? Uh, anyone know a toddler? Okay, you guys know a toddler? Okay, so uh, who should we use? Uh, who's the toddler in your life? Your nephew. Your nephew? How old is he? Uh, two. Perfect. Where does he live? Uh, oh, great. So you see the kid once in a while. Yeah. Okay, you go there for Shabbos sometimes? Just, just Shabbos. Excellent. Now tell me, at the table, who was the, um, who was the most alive? It's great. And tell me, who, was the, who was, uh, had the most loving closeness going on at the whole, in the whole event? What, what does that mean? Well, I don't know how much he knows you, but who, was, who would have been like, won the award for loving closeness? Like, to the Talda? Like... No, no. Who was the most experiencing love and closeness? I guess my sister with her, with her son. Is the toddler the son? Yeah. So it wasn't. It was the toddler. I, I hear. If we, if, we, if we were to unpack your sister's relationship to love and closeness, you know, we'd all be like, we'd be here for five hours dealing with that. You know, like, who knows how complicated that is, you know. Like, the toddler's probably the safest person she knows. Probably, yeah. Which is probably why you noticed she was feeling a lot of love and closeness, but the toddler gets it naturally. Toddler's always the most loving and close. Loving closeness is what toddlers are all about. I mean, go get a hug from a toddler. You know, it's just amazing. They just hug with their whole being. I mean, they just completely, like, give their hearts entirely. That's the danger, is you want to be so careful with such a heart. Such a heart without any boundaries. Those kids are like, you know, they don't know how to hold back. They're just going to trust and trust and trust, and that's why we have to care for them so much. Now, of course, all you people who've been badly stung, that was yesterday's class, was, uh, was that you don't trust enough. So, you, so nothing ever even can get going because you're so busy worrying about getting hurt. That toddler, what's his name? Nachman. Nachman? Nachman? Yeah. Nachman's not scared of getting hurt. Did he seem scared that you might hurt his feelings if he was too nice to you or something? No. Okay, and then the next is who had... Uh, who had the? Who was the most? Um, who was the most self-expressed at the meal? Uh, the toddler. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had my kids. I've had several two-year-olds in my house. My kid, you know, I'm, I'm at the head of the Shabbos table, a bunch of guests from all over the world, and my my two-year-olds like they call in Yiddish they call you Tati. So my kids like Tati. Who is that strange man sitting next to you? <laughs> yeah, they're just fully self-expressed. You know, I'm like. He's not strange, son. He's just different. You know, and, and, he's, and my kid's like, he's not different. He's strange. And, and then I turn to the guy and I'm like, I'm really sorry. You know, and he's like toddlers. You know. Anyway, Nachman was for sure the most self-expressed. And then the other one is who has the most health, most health and vitality at the table? Nachman? For sure. He's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Health, vitality, I mean, he's just like a lean, mean machine, that kid, you know. He's on the, was he obese? No. No, was he lethargic? No. No, was he on antibiotics? No. No, and so, now, by the way, kids can wind up on antibiotics if you raise them in a shtetl. 
because they're uh, they're just catching everything. But it's better just to let them ride it through because the immune system of kids raised in shtetls. No, Rechavi is not a shtetl. But I raised my kid in the shtetl. It's the best thing. I mean, they catch everything before they're three, <laughs> and then they're just there's nothing left for them after that. You know, they're just healthy. They're amazing. They're, these kids are like it's like just one giant pool of germs. All these kids. I mean, they. they it used to be evening time. Everyone just searches for their kids because they pass out. Kids, they, there's so much vitality in these kids. They don't go to sleep. They pass out. You find them, like, sometimes the kid's missing in my house. We're like, we finally were like, let's check the bathroom. You know, and, and there she is, fast asleep on the toilet. And, you know, they pass out, these kids. They don't fall asleep. We go to sleep. They pass out. And, the, and so in our shtetl where I live, they can pass out anywhere. And so the neighbor just puts a blanket on them. Then they forget about the kid because they got their own 10 kids to worry about. And now your kid's sleeping somewhere and the neighbor doesn't even know they're in their house. Several times we knocked on doors and we're like, you know, is our so-and-so in your house? And they're like, no, he was here earlier, but he disappeared at some point. Now there's a whole neighborhood search and finally they find the kid in one of their bedrooms, you know, like passed out under a table or something. And lastly, is of everyone at that Shabbos table, who is the most satisfied? For sure, because he doesn't have... See, we're all like, we're always like... You know, I was just with someone uh, an hour ago who was telling me that... Uh, he just worked with me last week. He was in my seminar. So, so uh, he, he said that he enjoyed his first Schwitz ever. His first Schwitz. You guys know what a Schwitz is? Schwitz? It's a sauna. Sauna. So Hasidim... Hasidim... <laughs> Part of the culture of Hasidim, first of all, Hasidim had more fun in general. Because I was a Litvak at one point. You guys know what a Litvak is? Yeah. You can look it up in the dictionary. But I, I, was a, I was a Litvak at one point. For three years, I was like a Litvak. And I wasn't any Litvak. I was a stinky Litvak. You know what a stinky Litvak is? No. I was it. I lived it for three years. I would like, I'd be in the middle of a Shabbos meal. Once it got to about an hour and a half mark, I would go up to the host and say, you know, this is really a Bittelsmann. You know, I mean, do you mind if I bench and go back to base midrash? You know, and I'd say it just loud enough that everyone at the table should hear that that I consider this table a waste of time because shouldn't we be learning Torah right now? And and I was that guy every week. I would do that at every meal. Like I just waited for my moment to like let everyone know that I'm going back to learning. You know, and then I'd go and learn and like learn all night. You know, until the morning and daven and sunrise and, and you know I was like I was a crazy guy. I was like the classic Litvak. But, but what happened was, because of my action sports background, because I spent years and years and years just involved in action sports and serious social events and lots, lots of fun and big parties and stuff like that, because I had that background, by my third year of being a Litvak, I started getting this, I started getting this terrible sense of boredom. And, uh, because my body was used to a lot of action. And I, and I was getting I was I was getting like chronic boredom. You guys heard of chronic boredom? It's a syndrome that Hasidim have if they're raised litfish. So I was going through chronic boredom, and and I just needed some action. And wow, when I met those Hasidim, whoo, a lot of fun. Like for example, our prayers are primal scream praying, where I pray. It's prime. You know what primal scream therapy is? Primal scream therapy is amazing. I was actually just another person, a client I had this morning. I was working with. I was trying to get him to his primal screen, but we're, we're nowhere so far. And he's like, his job was to say, I will express myself. And then I say, you will not. <laughs> and he's like, 
I must express myself. And I say, be quiet. You shall not express yourself. And I would keep getting louder and louder till he could get to his primal scream and let out that he must express himself. We didn't get anywhere. We didn't get anywhere, but we're working. It's the second time we tried that particular therapy where I, I keep kind of abusing him that he shall not express himself until he will finally... I'm just waiting for him to, to scream and get it out. Anyway, there's a therapy called primal scream therapy. It's a pretty amazing um, therapy. So there's actually... I found a Hasidic synagogue that does primal scream prayer. Primal scream prayer. I mean, there's no one in this room who's ever screamed as loud as we pray. You know, unless you had some crazy emergency and you scream, like, like meaning like your sister was about to cross the tracks and right when the train was coming. And you, and you just screamed from like 50 yards away, like with everything you had, because that was your only hope to save her. Maybe you scream that loud. And even then, maybe not. Where's the synagogue? It's in Mea It's in Mea you got to kind of get through Mea to get to the synagogue. <laughs> but the, uh, it's... Perfect. Pince Carlene, it's in base itself. Yeah, join me this week. I'll put you right next to me. I'm in like the real pocket of screamers. What time are you doing? What time? Normal times. We hold by The normal times. Normal times. Shachis is eight. And, uh, and uh, I mean, say Krishma, because Pesukah Zimmer is an hour and a half. You know, so Shachis is an eight. And, um, and then Mincha, Mari, and Shabbos is right before Shkia, 10 minutes before Shkia. Now, um, anyway, but there's also mikvahs, and there's road trips, and there's get-togethers, and there's all this good stuff. So, so anyway, I became Hasidic. And I, I've never had a dull moment since, since I became Hasidic, because it's a lot more fun. And, uh, and the thing is, it might not be as fun for ladies, because if you're litfish, your husband's actually home Shabbos night. You know, if you're litfish, you get to, like, have your hubby all to yourself. You know, and, it, and it's kind of like your family's the community. Like your little families, the community, because there's never a community get together in the Litfish world unless someone dies, or there's you know there might be a wedding in the community or something. But it's more when someone dies, everyone's there all together. And the, the Hasidim, they're all together like all the time, you know, constantly getting together. But it may be a little harder on the women. Don't know, but but we're also much more into Kabbalah, so at least the women get like they get like Kabbalah going on because Hasidic study is Kabbalah. They just kind of. It's like layman's Kabbalah. Kabbalah for the layman, for lay people. But it's pure Kabbalah. I mean, if you know Kabbalah's farm, it's the same stuff as the Hasidus. It's just that the Hasidus, is, it's all been couched in a way that you can get it without creating any destabilizing uh, parts to it in the, when you learn Hasidus. Anyway, that's it for my commercial for becoming Hasidic, or at least marrying a Hasid. Um, obviously, anyone who's raised secular Becoming Hasidic is something they should think twice about, unless they're going to live in Sfat. If you're going to live in Sfat, being Hasidic is just the most natural thing that ever happened. But if you're not going to be living in Sfat, so mm, joining the Hasidic world, if you're not from an observant background, is, is a dubious thing to do and, and uh, maybe not so recommended. Not so recommended. Okay. Um... Anyway, but when you're no one, you got your natural personality, then you have another thing which is amazing, is you have what's called koichus and nefesh. I don't know how to explain that. But, uh, how do you say koichus? It's like, yeah, it's the things you're, you're naturally good at by birth. Like, you're just born into that. 
So, so that's called Kokos Hamefesh. You have these natural Kokos Hamefesh, uh, which is these, uh, uh, let's call it uh, inborn, inborn skill sets. Although they may not be specific or necessarily honed in yet, but you have natural things. Like, for example, um, there's three categories of Kokos Hamefesh. The three categories are intellect. Uh, I'm going to shut that. So there's intellect, and then there's interpersonal. And then there's the uh, instinctual. Like, I, I do career counseling, so I had a lot of meetings today. Someone else hired me to find a career. So the so we we first sat down to figure out what are his kochos and nefesh. What was he born with? Is he intellectual? And the answer was no. Is he interpersonal? Also not. Was he instinctual? Very instinctual. And I knew that already because because when you you could sense an in, instinctual guy, and and they're also they're they're often uh, instinctual people will often be a bit heavier, which was a quick tip off. Because they their animal instincts strong, and and so their appreciation of food is more, and the uh, and if they're not into sports, they might come out a bit heavier. Instinctual people, um, but what's nice is this guy's going to be a wealthy guy one day because he's got. There's two other settings. There's there's either flow. There's either flow. Or there's structure. It's either flow or there's structure. So he was instinct structure, which is uh, that's uh, some of the wealthiest people in the world are the instinct structure types. And by the way, there's nothing with brains. Meaning, I know people are interpersonal or absolute geniuses. They just don't care that much about philosophy. And and this guy, for example, was brilliant, and he's really going to be best in probably real estate. That's what we discovered. All the stock traders, those top stock traders, they're brilliant guys. They're instinctual. They sense the markets, and they're very good at the numbers and the structures of, of the markets and how the how things are trading and stuff. So, like the per- it's funny. These are the poorest people, and these are the richest people when it comes to instinct. This the perfect job for this guy is lifeguard. Instinct flow. You, know, you can only be a lifeguard if you're instinctual. Like you got to deal with some first aid and stuff. You also love the sand and the, you know, it's just it's very sensual. The water and the sand and the sun and the wind and the waves and it's like, it's like your body's totally engaged like all the time. You know, in the in the instincts of it, but it's also very flow because you're a lifeguard. You know, a lifeguard without big waves means you're not you're not going to be saving a lot of people very often. You know. And the uh, and then there over here is the stock trader. Stock trader. All those best stock traders are are over here. And then there's all the interpersonal occupation, the intellectual occupations. Anyway, but we all have kochos and nefesh. And this thing that I painted on the board just now is like the answer to your kochos and nefesh. And these are born. You're born with these kochos and nefesh. This was, it's built in. These are not socialized things. These are in, they're in Nachman. 
the toddler in Shabbos. Yeah, he, he's already there. You'll just notice when you hear the two-year-old's questions. You know, they're either going to have to do with ideas, or they're going to have to do with relationships, or they're going to have to do with things. Okay? Ideas, relationships, and things. And you don't have to spend more than an hour with Nachman on a walk or take him to the park and just listen to him talking away. He's going to talk away. And you'll just notice it's either going to be idea-oriented, it's going to be interpersonal-oriented, or it's going to be thing-oriented. And so you, you get to know him real quick. And, then, and so we all have that. So, so you got that, young lady? What's your name? Rivka. Rivka, you got that? So being no one, you already got your natural personality. It's a hell of a lot better than the one you created. No offense, Rivka. And I don't know who you are, but I promise you, the natural one's the one I would prefer to interact with than some kind of, like, you know, some kind of a fabricated one that was there to protect you anyway from God knows what, you know, because we all go through stuff growing up, and, and we create our personality around what we went through. And the thing about it, your whole personality is really just what you went through, uh, but a protective device. That's what, you don't have a personality, you have a, you have a fortress, you know, your personality is really a fortress, not a personality. And when you're no one, there's no fortress. There's just, it's just you, pure and true. And, and then you got your natural personality, which is always fun to be with someone who's really pure and free and natural. And then you have your kochas and nefesh. And then you have above that, and I started with the end. I started with the end, so that's why I think you didn't get it. Was I started with step four, and step four is, um, is uh, I don't know what to put, uh, so you got one, we'll call it step three, two, and then step three down here is your, is your, um, um, what we'd call it is just your, uh, you guys help me with this, it's, it's what we spoke about earlier, you're like pure possibility, like you can be, you can wear a million hats. Everything's possible. What would you call this? Your what? Potential. No, but it's much more practical than that because you're constantly applying it. Like, now I'm a father. Now I'm a, now I'm, now I'm a mother. Like, my wife leaves the country. I'm, now I'm a mother. Uh, what? Flexibility. It's your ability to wear a million hats. Multitask. Multitask, no. What? Huh? Fluidity is a dangerous term these days. Um, but it's a much better term than anyone else's so far. It's so your... Um, for lack of a better word... For your endless possibilities. Okay? For your endless possibilities, which is... Yeah, your adaptability. I put possibilities, but I'm also it's it's uh, my seminar is called the po- my seminar is called the possible you. It's not called the true you. It's called the possible you because if it was the true you that you created, well, you just start fortressing around that. Like you say, oh, this is who I am, and now you're going to go push that on everybody. So it's called the possible you because anything's possible, and you're just as possible to be this as that in any given moment based on what's appropriate for what's being asked of you in that particular situation. Anyway, but that's the possibilities. Or I liked fluidity, and that was cool. And, uh, and then what was the third one? Adaptability. Some adaptability, right. Very nice. So, and what a pleasure. And what a pleasure to be around someone like that. And when we, when we think about people you like most love, they're the closest to these. 
The people you most love are close to this. And here's the crazy thing, is all the you that you've fabricated as you is a pain in the neck to be around. I mean, you're a liability, no offense, but you're a liability to be close to. <laughs> but think about it, you are a liability. It's not easy to get close to you. You gotta be like some kind of genius to like not step on the eggs shells that are nearby. And you, it's like, it's not, it, you have not made it easy to get close to you. And yet your deepest desire is to get close to people. Like all you want is closeness, but you're, you're just complicated. And you're, and you're, you're, um, it's taxing to be close to. You know, it's, it's effort. People can come out of their relationship with you exhausted. And meanwhile, you're desperate for closeness. So there's like, obviously, there's some problem going on here. There's some, some, we're missing it. Like, there's some disconnect going on here. And the disconnect is with, a very simple disconnect, the disconnect is you disconnected from the known, which is another way of saying the toddler, or the, even better is to say the neshama. The neshama. That's the disconnect. That's this. And Torah is always trying to get us back there. Like, and and here's the kicker. The kicker is that everyone in this room, with the exception of maybe four people in this room, were raised in full tribal Judaism. Shabbat, kashrus, you know, prayer. Like we were given a path of total. Ego, self-image nullification. We're all raised in it. I mean, think how much Judaism's there to knock down your ego. Think about it. The whole tradition, the point of the tradition is to connect to God, but the whole tradition kicks you down so hard on the ego. Kicks you down. Like, I don't care how big you are in the world. Like, you got to shut that device off for 24 hours a week. And you cannot assert yourself in the world for 24 hours. You're just a nobody when it comes to social networking. You're a nobody for 24 hours. It just knocks you down. You want to go interact with all the stars and all the big people and uh, socially and everything? Sorry, you're not even allowed in a kosher restaurant. You can't even go in there to drink water. You know, especially men in a kippah and sitsis and, you know, pay, like you're not allowed in there. Because you got we got an issue of Marisayan. People see people see a person like you in there, and they start to think maybe it's kosher. And next, you know, Jews are going to eat there, so it's forbidden to even go there. So you can't even interact normally with all the ego people, all the stars, all the socialites. Like you're not Judaism will keep you out of there. You know, it's, it's going to keep you humble. Another thing is is Judaism. Our tribal tradition means you're always under a mentor. It's, there's no, I did it my way in Judaism. It just doesn't exist. It's like un-American Judaism. Like there, there's no self-made man in Judaism. Greatness comes from, from being with a Rebbe. You know, you got someone mentoring you the whole time. And when you get married, ladies, you're under your, your husband's mentor. And he's leading your family to victory. Not you, not your husband. You are, you are being led. Now, obviously, a good mentor gives you all the sense of independence, all the sense of power, all the sense of choice, all the sense of leadership. A good mentor is taking really good care of you. In meaning, 
in not being the guy who's like taking away because a good mentor knows that what's reward come from. Because think about it, you're only, what is this world? This world's just a holographic projection. This world doesn't exist. There's nothing real here. This is a holographic projection. So the only possible reward you could have for like swimming around an aquarium like this world would be your choices. So a mentor knows that. Someone who knows Torah deeply it knows that your only reward will be from choices. So he's going to always give you the space for your choices so that you are rewarded for swimming around an aquarium for 70, 80 years, as if there were any years. There's no such thing as years. There's only now. God never created time. Time is a psychological figment of our imaginations. But you've got to have choice. So good mentors leave that space for the choice. That's my job as a mentor is I just create, like, I, I lead them to the choices. And then, and, you know, I make sure that I can do something really stupid. You know, I will step in if it's going to, if someone's going to get hurt, I'll step in. But otherwise, I lead, the end choice is their choice so that they can own that choice. So they can be rewarded for the choice. Anyway, the, we're from the tribe that's just their to, to nullify, I mean, why do you think, I know I say this a million times, but why do you think our prayer shawls have black stripes on them? Because it's barcode. So God knows who's praying. Okay, we're, we're, all of our prayers, all of our prayers are in plural. You're not even, you're not, I don't have a prayer book here, but you're, no offense, you're not in here. <laughs> this doesn't include you. You know, it includes you as much as it includes every Jewish person in the tribe, not to mention the Gentiles that benefit greatly from this, but because we're a light to them and we're obviously channeling down the creation into the world that everyone benefits from. But you're not in here as an individual. When you just turn to any page, you know, it's just <laughs> Song of the Sea. It's not about anyone there except for that. But, uh, you know, I, these aren't prayers, but not getting any prayers. Here's some prayers. Baruch Atah Hashem Elokeinu. What's that mean? Elokeinu? Our God. And the God of our, our fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's, it's just, you're not in there. You're from a tribe that was set up for you not to fall into, and I hate to go this strong, but I'm going to go this strong. <laughs> I realize I better stop soon. Is let you fall into demonic possession. And when I say demonic possession, I don't mean demons. What I mean is the DMN part of your brain, the default mode network which is the part of your brain that projects into the future everything you went through in the past to make sure you can navigate. And, let, and you developed a personality to navigate the, the future. So you're like, you're like at all times on some white-knuckled ride to somehow navigate your life based on the past. And that default mode network that's inside your brain suppresses your experience of life and co coats everything into concepts, a digital display for you to somehow navigate and not get hurt. 
yet you're from a tribe. If you're Jewish, you're from a tribe that was set up to, to suppress all that so that you could be in full experience of life. Oops, 409. Um, everyone, um, please, please uh, join my club, the yomtovmediaclub.com. Uh, if you're watching this, the club's finally established, so please join the club. Click yomtovmedia.com. Uh, yomtovmediaclub. Anyone want to be in my club? I've got a club, so please join it. It's going to be very special, and we're going to do cool things together. yomtovmediaclub.com. Shalom, everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.